0: Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, fellow humanizers, and welcome to the show. I'm I'm in that kind of upbeat, I'm just doing an introduction to the podcast mode right now. I feel the energy. I'm only going to be on the mic for a few minutes, because I've already recorded this lovely interview. Actually, it's the second interview I did with my buddy, David Fleischer, um, who you might remember was the you know, emperor of deep canvassing. And you know, it was interesting. After our last conversation, I got a lot of feedback from people saying, I don't feel like you got at that guy, got at the best of him. I feel like there was more there. And so I called David and said, hey, would you be willing to talk again? And I don't know if we dug to the depths this time i don't know if we got everything everybody else wanted but especially towards the end of the conversation i got some stuff that i think is really gonna help me um both in terms of the way i talk with people who think and believe and hold different opinions from me um which is always a concern and always a a sort of a passion of mine is to figure out how do we connect with people across these vast worldview divides. But also David reminded me that there's like 400 days between now and the next election and that there's work to be done, especially if you live in a swing state like I do here in Ohio. But I had understood the work to be convincing people who believe strongly one way to believe strongly in another way. And David really turned me on to this idea of no, maybe the idea is to, on the one hand, try to reduce negative or prejudiced feelings of, of people on our side towards people on their side and people on their side on people on our side. And you don't even know what their side and our side are half the time. But more importantly, he said, listen, if, more people that were registered to vote came out and voted. If the vote was, what's the opposite of suppressed? If the vote was promoted, was fostered. Yes, if, 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 if there was voting fo- vote fostering, um, that if more people came out and voted, the election would probably go in the direction that those of us who are committed to loving relationships and to making things better for other people, especially for poor people, that we're that we're wanting to kind of restore a level of sanity towards our approach to climate change, all these things that that a lot of us are concerned about that, that that the people that are not voting right now, they're the people they they would if if they voted, they would probably vote disproportionately on 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 the side of the angels. And so, Those are the people to go after. And, you know, I think you'll like this conversation. I mean, I got a lot out of talking to David a second time. I'm I'm working on the likes. I think you're going to see that I'm working on the likes. But I want to tell you right now about some people I like in an actual and true way. Here are some people that I really like in this moment because when we look at the list of people that are supporting the show, they're right there on it. AJ, Colin, John. J-O-N, John. And John, you know who you are. Matt Bell. I would say just Matt, but Matt, there's Matthew Wipert too. And he's also on the list. And Matthew Wipert, I, I I don't want to confuse you with Matt Bell because you're both wonderful. And Mark Rogers, Dustin Blackburn, Ben Sweetser. And I hope I pronounced that right. Linda Coleman. I'm so glad you're on the team, Linda. And Duncan, Duncan. Duncan is one of my former student buddies at USC. He's a graduate. He's out there traveling the world, doing interesting work, trying to figure out how to climb out of the bubble of kind of being an elitely educated white man in America and really get in touch with the experiences of, of people that are different from him. And he's, someday you're going to read a book by, 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 by Duncan Gammy, and you're going to go, I was a supporter of the same podcast as him. That's, and, and, and that's going to be a source of pride. So, all right, to all of you and to all of you that I am going to shout out later and have shouted out before, I hope the shout outs feel significant because they do to me. I'm, just, I'm not going to do any more, more ado. I'm going to take you over to this conversation between me and David Fleischer on Humanize Me. Dave, I'm just so glad to, to do this. I, this is a very rare experience for me where I get done a conversation. And I just think, oh, man, there was so much more I wanted to talk to that person about. And so I, I'm just grateful for sort of a second helping.
1: Bart, what a pleasure. Uh, I'm, my only regret is I'm not there with you. And then, uh, you know, we'd probably go even longer.
0: I know. And we and we came close. I mean, Chillicothe, <laughs> that's, you were there. You were right there in Ohio. I, I was. You know, it's interesting. The last time we talked, uh, I got a number of letters from people who said to me, oh, that reminds me of this, uh, this form of conversation um, called street epistemology where secular people go out and engage with um, people and you know, basically on the street interviews where they sort of say like, hey, just tell me something that you believe strongly and then tell me why you believe it. And they end up getting in these big conversations with people about sort of the nature of how we make the decisions that we make. And uh, it was interesting because when I talk to the street epistemology people who are lovely, um, a guy named Anthony Magnabosco, who I think you would you would have a lot to talk with about. What, but one of the things I always struggle with with them is like, what's their motivation? Like, why do you want to have that conversation? Is it about changing somebody's mind? Is it about like getting them to abandon a bad belief or a bad way of making decisions. You know, like kind of what are you about? And and I, I get different answers from different people. But as as I think about these four hundred days between now and November, and you running around, or you helping other people run around Ohio, uh, talking with people, what are you hoping to? What, what what are you trying to, what do you, what's the point of these conversations? Like, what do you want to happen? What, what would be a good conversation? Oh, well, we do want to change people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I don't need to be, I, I, when we're talking with somebody who's registered to vote, but who doesn't vote, we want them to start voting. <laughs> we're very unequivocal about that. Right. But, the the real the reason the conversations are really different than what that might lead you to expect is we put aside our agenda for quite a while in the beginning of the conversation because it 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 uh what we've learned is that first you just need to connect with people uh you have to reach a point where they trust us to be decent, to not be there to shame them or judge them or tell them uh, that they just need to change their life. I don't think anybody really finds that uh, helpful when they receive that. So that isn't what we do. And, uh, And so it has to be enough for us to initiate the conversation and connect with a person and have it go no further than that. That has to be enough because that's the necessary prerequisite before anything deeper can occur. Uh, So that means we have a certain number of conversations, right? I I guess we have some where people don't even allow us to connect where they say, no, thank you. Uh, But we, but we have a significant number where we do connect. And, uh, but, but people are not necessarily going to end up seeing things the way we do. The yeah. voter who doesn't vote might decide they still don't want to vote. And, and we have to be okay with that. The thing that's beautiful about taking the time to connect with people and especially to connect around who 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 do we love, who do they love, is that that enables us it, it gives us this wonderful opportunity to help the voter reflect on what is important to them and even to see voting in a different light, because if they start to reflect on who they love and They start to realize as we talk that voting is a gift you give to the people you love. Well, then they may decide as they uh, consider this, that in fact, they would like to vote or they have a different perspective on whether they'd like to vote. So when I say we want to change them, I guess that's paired with uh, a great deal of humility, about uh, the fact that we are unable to change them single-handedly, we were we are unable to change them in a one-way interaction. Uh, we are unable to just squeeze them into an algorithm, deliver a robotic message, and uh, mold yeah, them I mean, to our will.
0: Right. I mean, that, <laughs> I mean that much. Idea, I did. I I I I have grasped. Is that? Is that? You know the ooh. yeah. You know the play, Children of a Lesser God. Oh, I I saw that movie. Yeah. The movie's
1: great. The play could be even better. I was lucky enough to see it on Broadway with John Rubenstein delivering the performance of a lifetime. But he's a teacher and his idea of teaching at the beginning of the play is with a great deal of humor and kindness. uh, He can mold the students to be more like him. And what he discovers by the end of the play is, in fact, that's not the way it works. That's not what teaching is. Uh, Teaching, you've got to be content with the truth that uh, the person you want to teach is going to decide for themselves what they want to learn. And that's potentially going to be where you have enormous influence, but there's nothing automatic about it.
0: Yeah, the idea of nurturing the the flame that's already there rather than unscrewing the top of their head and pouring in an identity or the or the or the information or the ideas that you want them to have. I guess what I yeah. find my, what I find myself wondering is like I imagine, you know, when you said 400 days I was like, "Oh, 400 days is not that long." Um I keep thinking that election is farther away. Uh, I guess maybe because there are still 27,000 Democratic candidates. And so I think, well, you know, it's going to take a long time to winnow that down.
1: Um, Oh, I think there's another reason even more profound, which is I think for most people, maybe yourself included, you don't know what you could do 400 days in advance. And uh, whereas it's very clear what you can do on Election Day. (laughs) and and every day one step back from that uh is a little bit more confusing if you've never uh gotten involved in in trying to get more voters on our side
0: but if somebody was going out there deep canvassing in ohio for instance at this at this point my sense is that the goal would probably be less about i want to convince you not to vote for Donald Trump or I want you to convince you to vote for Elizabeth Warren or whoever you're excited about, but rather to go, I I just want to talk, like, I want to, I want to try to influence you or change you, as you say, into being somebody who votes for the right reasons. It sounds like your, your desire is that people would both vote more, be more likely to vote and be less likely to vote for mean reasons?
1: Well, there really are two different types of voters that we've been very curious about. And they're really, really different. And what you're speaking to speaks to that difference as well. So when we're talking to infrequent voters, right, uh, uh, in a nonpartisan way, but but right, meaning we're not favoring one candidate over another or one party over another, and when our objective is really to help them begin the journey to become frequent voters, and uh, right, and and you're, uh, and, and
0: I'm assuming you're, you're trying to get them to see a connection between your vote actually matters in the world, like it makes a difference for the people that you care about, like. I, I've got to think that one of the main reasons people don't vote is because they don't think it will matter. Well, I, or is that wrong?
1: I, I guess I would be more specific. They, I think it's much clearer to people that they want to vote when they see that their vote is, is something they are doing either for themselves or somebody they love. Uh, And it doesn't have to be to remedy a problem, right? In other words, I think part of the difficulty here is, for instance, let's say, right, my dad's 95. And if I was a non-voter, maybe you would think that reminding me that social security is important to him and Medicare is important to him. And so that's why I ought to be voting. I I don't think these instrumental reasons are... uh, necessarily going to matter nearly as much as just my thinking through the fact that uh, I love my dad. And and so when I vote, uh, voting is really about something bigger than uh, as important as it is, as important as getting social security is, as important as Medicare is um what's really even more important is that i'm voting for a kind of society and world where where love is uh sort of the guiding
0: principle so so in a sense it's a form of expression where where you put in it's a way of saying i care i love my dad
1: well and There's one step beyond that, because otherwise there are a lot of things I could do to express my love to my dad that are not in the public sphere. But we both live, my dad and I live as people who love each other, and we also live in the world uh, that has an impact on how likely it's gonna be that people treating other people well is, is gonna be the environment in which we get to love each other. And so in a way, Donald Trump is uh, the perfect crystallization for many voters about uh, about this uh, because I would say he's the opposite of love, right? What he models every day is uh, he diminishes or demeans somebody instead of, what we know when we love people, where we care for them and we rely on them and they rely on us. Uh, He's ready to throw anybody under the bus. Anybody is expendable. Uh, And it's Donald Trump models, it's totally great to be just out for yourself. You know, America's number one and he's number one in America. It's like this vision of people who are disconnected from each other, except in combat essentially, and temporary transient alliances. Well, that's the opposite of love. And uh, so if somebody is thinking about who they love, and uh, this is what's interesting when we're talking to infrequent voters, right? You would think, wow, if we want to get infrequent voters to vote, we have to have a long talk about Donald Trump. Uh, We do not. We need to have a long talk about love. And then maybe 5% of the conversation would be about Donald Trump, but they already know that they don't like him. You know, we went back, we canvassed all of 2018. uh, And after the election was over, we went back to re-canvass a lot of the infrequent voters we had spoken with because we wanted to know, did they vote? And, uh, and uh, did they vote all the way down the ballot? Did they start to become a, a frequent voter, uh, an informed voter? Did, they, did their feelings about voting start to change? And also who did they vote for? And what was interesting, right, is we didn't have to change their minds about, uh, about Donald Trump. Uh, 91% of them, uh, they, they voted against Trump In the way they wanted to, without our ever mentioning the words Democrat or Republican. Uh, I guess what I'm telling you is the story of infrequent voters in this country is that the vast majority of them, uh, if they voted,
0: they know who they'd vote for. They
1: would overwhelmingly be voting in a more progressive way than what the rest of the country does. So, in a state like Michigan, for instance, where, you know, 2.2 million people voted for Donald Trump in 2016, 2.2 million people voted for Hillary Clinton, Trump narrowly won by 10,704 votes. And at the same time, 2.7 million people who were registered to vote uh, didn't vote in that race. So, uh, you know, if the vast majority of that 2.7 million would have voted against Donald Trump. Honestly, Michigan would not have been a close contest. And uh, so so part of the challenge, right? And I think part of the thinking uh, on the part of the people who, uh, uh, I, I, I hate to personalize it so much to Donald Trump because he's not alone by any means, but they're a group of forces that, uh, that know that their ability to compete in elections in this country depend on a lot of people not voting. And uh, so in a variety of ways, right? They discourage people from voting. They mechanically make it difficult, but even more importantly, they make politics seem dirty and rotten and fake and uh, something that decent people might stay away from. They make it confusing and mystifying Uh, There's a lot of misinformation that they offer. And then finally, uh, they really offer a variety of types of psychological intimidation. Whenever you're trying to diminish a group of people and make them feel like they're outsiders in their own society and don't belong here, you're teaching them that they shouldn't be voting or you're trying to. And uh, when you make appeals to fear and division, you do the same. I would say I just described Uh, The dynamics that uh, powered the Donald Trump campaign to victory, but not only him. And so when we're really speaking with voters about love, uh, what we're really doing is offering a very different way for people to think about uh, voting and even more so their place in society. And the fact that they belong here and the fact that the people they love are worth standing up for.
0: It's 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 interesting to me because I yeah, I, I think I might have mentioned to you the last time we talked that I spend a lot of time with people that are non-believers in God, who are trying to get it, who who have conversations with people that are very strong believers in God, oftentimes within their own families. Um, And those conversations often don't go very well. Um, I don't know if you've, if you've ever been in one of those conversations um, where you were talking with somebody on the other side of the faith divide and it wasn't, it wasn't productive or it wasn't helpful. Um, But, but when they're in those conversations, a lot of times they don't talk about love it's, you know, just hearing, hearing you talk about how, in, in a sense, your goal in a lot of this deep canvassing is to try to move the conversation onto the realm of let me tell you about who I love and let me hear about who you love. And let's talk about what love has to do with our lives. Um, and th- 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 that's kind of a win for you. That, that's, that's moving the political conversation in a direction that you want it to go. I, I sort of feel like it's the same way about this faith conversation. That a lot of times people are talking about what's true um, or how or what they can prove or what the evidence says, but they're not talking about love. They're not talking about loving relationships. They're not talking about how their beliefs or how their, how their lifestyle connects with their relationships. I, I, am I making any sense to you, the connection? Oh, do you, yeah. Do you see any connection?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I – uh... Yeah, and I think uh, the dynamic you're describing, right, where uh, the person who's trying to instigate change uh, tells somebody else what the truth is. Uh, I think a lot of progressives have a wish that's, that that's what we need to do and that it's going to be effective, Uh I I don't know where that wish comes from, either in uh, the discussion you're describing, where uh, people who have a different view of God, one of them is offering their version of truth to the other. I don't know where that wish comes from, that I'm going to tell you my truth, and then you're going to become just like me. Uh, I don't know where that wish comes from, but it's, it's the wrong wish. It's the wrong wish in politics, for sure. It's uh, it means that almost every online communication that progressives have that they think might influence the upcoming presidential election, almost every one of those online communications has zero impact. And uh, I hate to say that because uh, you'd like to think that uh, you don't have millions of people wasting their time, but uh, but you do. No, we do. Yeah, yeah, no, And so I, why somebody if uh so if you're describing somebody who uh does not believe in God offering their truth to somebody who does believe in God. Why would they do that, do you think? Yeah. I What are they I mean, trying to achieve, I guess is what I'm wondering.
0: Well, and what's interesting yeah, because what's interesting for me is I I I think there is this in a sense, a lot of times the people that are the most adamant in that conversation are people that have, that have deconverted themselves and they're, they're feelings angry that they had the wool pulled over their eyes, that they wasted time, that they were, they were deceived if by, by, by whoever brought them up or whoever converted them. And, uh, and in a sense, sometimes I think they're just—they're horrified that anybody believes in it. And in a sense, it's an outworking of their anger. They're—they're—they want to—they want to strip the faith away from other people. Um, I don't even think. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. They, they, but well, but they, it, it does sound
1: like an expression of anger. I mean, I feel like you've definitely got an emotional uh, component here that that could be right.
0: Uh, But but I also, I also think there's, there's, there's also a sense in which you want to validate yourself and the way you want to validate yourself is by showing somebody else that you're right. And so in some ways I think it's, it's it's sometimes the new non-believer is trying to convince everybody else to be a non-believer as a way of confirming to themselves that it's all right not to be a believer.
1: Well, you know, I guess when somebody has recently changed their mind, maybe the act of changing their mind, I don't know, maybe there's some fragility to it, but uh, I, I just know my, my, I guess I would wonder, is that the normative thing that you see, or is there just as commonly a very different approach when somebody changes their mind about God? Is, is it just as common that people could initiate those conversations, but instead of doing it driven by anger, uh, uh, they're just bringing love to it? And it's a conversation about love.
0: Sometimes it's very much a conversation. Sometimes what one of the, another motivations that's not anger is a a kind of a a rescue, a desire to rescue somebody from something that you've decided or come to the conclusion of is very harmful to them. And so Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people that having, they look at their believing friends and they see them as sort of trapped in the matrix. And they want to rescue them from this deception from this, that, that, that they, that they think is very harmful. Um, And, you know, and there are in, in terms of the, in our politics, there sometimes faith based political decision-making really does harm a lot of people, you know, it denies rights to people. It, 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 I mean, who am I telling you, you you know, that better as well as anybody. Um, And so, there is this desire sometimes to rescue the believer or to disarm somebody who's aiming to hurt you. And those aren't hateful desires at all. in many ways they're they're motivated by love, but they don't often even though the motivation might be loving, they oftentimes don't bring love into the conversation.
1: So, yeah. Uh, rescue, that's a really interesting idea. I, I think, right, the, the problem is you, you can't rescue somebody who doesn't want to be rescued. And so before you begin your rescue effort, it seems to me at the very least, you have to ask the person you, you want to rescue a question. And the question you have to ask them is, uh, are they conflicted about where they are, right? In other words, are they feeling great uh, about their current view of God or are they feeling great about it and also conflicted about it? Because if you ask somebody uh, if if they're conflicted about it and they say, well, no, then I don't see how the rescue is going to occur, any more than if a lifeguard dives into the ocean to rescue somebody, and uh, the person who's out there is unconflicted about how they're doing.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and it, that, it is, it the, and that like is the and that is the outcome
1: to us. But uh, it doesn't look like drowning to them.
0: That's exactly the outcome most of the time. Is most of the you know, I mean, most of the ardent believers that engage with me. Are trying to they're trying to rescue me, they're trying to pull me back in, and oh, so sure. those okay. conversations, and 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 so what I find is, and the reason the reason why I wanted to bring this up with you is because I sense that you have with infrequent voters, you have one sort of approach, and then with hyper conservative voters, you have a, 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 maybe a different set of goals. You're trying to get them to be less prejudiced. And when it comes to secular and Christian conversations, I've come to the conclusion that it's a much better goal to, instead of trying to convince that person to abandon their faith in God, to try to reduce their prejudice against non-believers or to try to improve their, their, image of non-believers. So I'm not usually trying to directly undermine somebody's belief system. I'm simply trying to get them to, to see that my way of life is viable or is attractive or, 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 or isn't scary or isn't hostile to them. So I, I feel like the conversation where you're trying to rescue the other person Before you can rescue them, you'd need to convince them, as you said, that your side of the of the water or your side of the fence would would not be a hellish place to be, because they're certainly not going to get want to get rescued out of their way of life and into yours if they think yours is
1: horrific. Well, here's where I don't know enough about the parallelism between politics and religion, because here's the funny thing about politics is that. You can talk to a very conservative person who has only voted Republican. And and you can ask them directly, are you conflicted? And they're going to say no. And yet, if you approach it differently, you can discover whether or not they are conflicted. Mm -hmm. And of course, not all of them are. But the reason that just asking them directly is not good enough is that that question yes. right
0: yeah, right,
1: they, if, if right that you're gonna if you answer that question in the affirmative, if you say you're conflicted, you're making yourself extraordinarily vulnerable,
0: and you're saying because, something about yourself that you don't that nobody wants to say. Nobody wants to describe themselves as, yeah, I'm not, I'm uncertain. I don't know myself very well. I I do things I don't really believe in. Nobody wants to identify that way, even if that's the truth.
1: Well, that's right. That isn't how they see themselves. And yet, uh, this is, uh, so how do you get to the point where somebody who is conflicted will both notice it for themselves and speak it aloud to to you right and okay. the key to that uh, right this is why the way that these conversations begin with voters who we want to have an impact on in a way it's not that different with infrequent voters or with conservative voters both of whom we wish to change right um, in a way it's very similar because the very first thing we have to do is invite them to share their current opinion. And we have to listen. And, and we have to listen as long as they want to talk about it. Mm. And it really helps for me to write this down and take notes because yeah. that helps me shut up. Uh, and it also, uh, and then- And it tells them that done, you're taking
0: them seriously. It sends a message that you're taking that you really are- registering what they're saying. Uh, Well,
1: I'm trying to communicate to them that I'm really genuinely curious and that I'm really listening. And in fact, I've got to be genuinely curious because if I'm just going through the motions of it and rolling my eyes, either internally or externally, people can tell. So I have to find it in myself. I have to be interested enough in the people who are not like me that I really do want to hear their opinions and then after they're done and, and, I, and I need to not interrupt and I need to, in fact, do the opposite of interruption, which is even be silent a bit after they're done talking before I start talking. Because if I'm silent for five seconds, they might continue talking. They may have thought of something else that they believe. So I, I but when they've had a chance to, to say their opinions, then it's very helpful if I repeat them back to them. If I say, wow, so let me make sure I'm getting it right. It sounds like these are the things that feel true to you. And, you know, this just doesn't happen every day. Uh, how often do you feel really listened to, especially by somebody who might not be in agreement with you? It's No, it's, I, I, was
0: just, I was just talking to a therapist friend of mine, and they were talking about the – Number of times that clients fall in love with their therapist and they said it has nothing to do with sort of sexual appeal. It has to do with this is oftentimes the first person who's ever listened very carefully to them. Yeah. And it feels so amazing that they go, I think I love you.
1: (laughs) Right, right. I, I would say this might also be why Catholicism has made what turns out to be not only a beautiful and theological but a functional choice by offering confession.
0: Yeah, just listen and to And
1: communion, me. right? These are so, uh, so but anyway, that's so that's the first step is we just have to be willing to uh, invite listen. their opinion and listen. That's not sufficient though. No. The, the second step is just as crucial because if we stay in the realm of opinion, we will never affect anybody. People's opinions uh, are artifacts. They are, they are not the, I, I don't wanna make it sound like their opinions are meaningless, but they are the byproduct of something else. And I would say what they are the byproduct of primarily is not careful factual study of the situation or even cognitive reasoning, uh, they are a byproduct of people's emotional reaction to their real lived experience. So the only place where we can change things is if we move from talking about opinion to emotionally meaningful, real lived experience. And... So if if I listen to somebody's opinions, you would think, okay, maybe that means I can just say, "What is your relevant emotional experience here?" But but it does that doesn't work either because uh, again, for them to offer that, they're vulnerable. But in addition, uh, right, they may not have reflected on this much. It may not be immediately apparent to them what in the world we mean. No, so and that, and that's the
0: that's the street epistemologist tell me the same thing is that they say to somebody, What do you believe? Or yeah. what's your you know, and the person's very clear on that. And they say, Well, you know, how did you get there? Or, or on what and and a lot of times people haven't even stopped to think, well, why, you know, how did I come to believe that or why? It's so basic to them that it almost feels as if it wasn't a decision. Yeah. Yeah. So, so so, you could ask them, tell me about the relevant emotional experiences that you've had that led you to believe this way. And they were like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I believe it because it makes sense.
1: Well, that's right. And so we need to leave opinion. And the best way to leave opinion and start it is for us to be the first one to be vulnerable and for us to tell a story about are real lived experience with emotional weight that's relevant here. So if I talk to somebody about voting, uh, whether, you know, whether they want to participate in it or, you know, their conservatism, whatever it is, right? I listen to their opinions, right? And an infrequent voter's opinion might be, this has nothing to do with me. I am not political, right? And the Opinion being offered by the conservative voter could be quite different, right? There are a whole bunch of conservative opinions people could offer. Uh, But after listening and then making it clear we've listened, then what helps us is to say, you know, for me, uh, voting, it's political, of course, but it's also very personal. And then I tell a story about a person I love. That's what I do. And it's detailed and it's specific and it does not have a political agenda. It's not like an Aesop's fable where there's a clear moral that Obamacare is good. <laughs> right. It, and it's not a big story. It does not need to be something that could be adapted into the next uh, Marvel movie uh, with uh, Meryl Streep as Superwoman right? Uh, that would be the role played by us, of course. Um, right, it, it, uh, In fact, it's better if the story I tell about a person I love is small. So sometimes I tell a story, uh, I have several stories I tell about my dad, because my dad, more than any other person, I love him, uh, but also it, he's really the one who taught me what it means to be a good person and he did it by the way he treated other people and i have all these memories from growing up watching how he treated other people and so i'll tell a story about uh about a time i went with him to the emergency room cuz he was a pediatrician and uh and and seeing how he treated this uh guy from Ross County who uh was really, really different than our family, right? So I could tell you the whole story. It takes a while to tell it. And that's the other thing, stories take a while. So I'll take two or three minutes to tell a story about somebody I love and why I love them. And, it, and it's about a small thing. And then I ask them, what about you? Who's somebody you love? And, and sometimes people will say, why do you want to know? You know, sometimes people will be skeptical. That's fine. Then I'm just very honest saying, well, I think this is what's really, uh, I think this is what this is all about. It's what really is.
0: motivates us. Yeah.
1: But often people are quite ready to tell their story. Their story is popping out. How often are they invited to talk about somebody they love? by somebody who seems genuinely interested and who's made themselves vulnerable so it's clear that they're not there in a judgment capacity. And when people tell me then the story of who they love, I may have to ask a lot of questions to really draw out all the details. But you can see that now I'm in a really different position to notice whether they're conflicted because I've heard them tell me two different things. I've heard them tell me their opinions and I've heard them tell me their real lived experience with emotional weight. And if to me, they sound in conflict, uh, then I can say to the voter, wow, you know, it's so interesting. I heard you say this in the first part of our conversation and then I heard you say this, which really sounds different to me is it possible that you have conflicting feelings here? And, uh, and in politics, I will tell you this, um, especially talking with conservative voters, some of their opinions at the beginning of the conversation are pretty cruel. Uh, they really reflect a very low opinion of a lot of other people. Uh, but, uh, but often their real lived experience is much less cruel or not cruel at all. And so when I point that out to them and I ask, boy, do they have conflicting feelings? Uh, well, it turns out they do. Right. And, uh, and oh, yeah. then, and,
0: and d- yeah, I was just gonna say the, the para I like, my mind is buzzing because the parallels are almost identical in the faith conversation. Oh, really? Tell me. I get in a conversation with a person of faith who, who approaches me either to argue either because they're upset about something I've said or just that I exist or there's somebody in my family and they're concerned for my well-being. And they say, oh, Bart, I got to talk to you about this faith thing. I say, what? Well, tell me what you believe, which is, you know, that's my my approach. Tell me what you believe. And it's like asking what their political opinion is. And they tell me. And then I do exactly the same pivot. I, 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 instead of saying, well, what I believe is that that makes no sense, or what I believe is that the world was made this way, or what I believe is, I just like, wow. I said, you know, for me, like, like, m- this is what happened to me. Like this, it's it's a little bit more personal. Like I, I used to believe that stuff, and then this thing happened. These kids I was working with. Like the faith thing didn't work the way I wanted it to when I prayed for them. Or I, I, I like you, I have five or 10 stories where my faith didn't work in the way that I wanted it to. And it was very painful to me where I got disappointed or hurt. Um, And I tell them about somebody I love who the whole God thing didn't work out for. Or somebody I love who called the thing into question for me. And then when I say to them like, Have you ever had an experience like that where it was really hard to hold on to your faith because of something that was going on in your life without fail? Nobody ever says to me, no, it's always been easy to hold my faith. Like it totally makes sense. And I've never had a conflict. Everybody, nobody would say initially, are you conflicted about their faith? But when I tell them a story about where my faith, they go like, yeah, I had a thing like that happen where I prayed for somebody and they died or where something I really needed didn't happen, or where I prayed and I didn't feel anything for years or or whatever, they always have a story to match mine. Um, And then you're able to say like, wow, you know, at the beginning you seem so sure, and yet you've, you've got some conflicts here too. And they go like, yeah. And then they'll tell you how a person of faith deals with those conflicts, but the conversations all of a sudden about, on a very different level, when we're talking about our experiences of trying to believe in God versus having a abstract argument over whether or not Christianity is true. And so it's, it's, it's a direct parallel. It's exactly the same. Yeah.
1: And you're reminding me of conversations that I, I a lot of the organizing I've done has been in communities of faith and, uh, Maybe you're reminding me of some conversations I've had about the relationship between faith and doubt. Because uh, I remember growing up as a boy, my first experiences uh, talking with uh, evangelical people, uh, my understanding was faith meant certainty to them. That's certainly the literal way they expressed it. Uh, When I was in like eighth grade, a friend of mine, Cheryl Hand, uh, uh, brought me over to her house one day. I don't know if I've told you about this before. She, uh, She kept these big notebooks, scrapbook size. And she was showing, walking me through one. She had clipped from the Chillicothe Gazette and the Columbus Dispatch headlines of uh, floods, fires, uh, all kinds of catastrophes. And what she was telling me is that, you know, uh, the end of the world was coming. It was coming soon. And since I was Jewish, I had a very limited amount of time to uh, to alter make my make your faith. decision
0: for Jesus. Yes.
1: Yeah. And she did this in an incredibly kind way. I'm describing it in a way where maybe it sounds uh, slightly ridiculous, but it did not feel ridiculous uh, to her. No, she was a
0: rescuer. She was a rescuer.
1: Yeah. And she was uh, trying
0: to rescue you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So to me, her faith sounded like uh, certainty, but it didn't sound uh, coming from her unkind uh and i was very polite uh and <laughs> wasn't interested uh and part of what i was thinking though uh was uh i felt sorry for her and i i i think that impulse on my part is actually not any smarter than any of the stuff she was telling me because I I was assuming that the certainty that I was hearing in her words around her faith were the whole story, but I never really asked her the questions that I hope I would have the humility to ask now, which would lead me to maybe discover that along with her faith and along with the literal statement of what she believed coexisted uh, for lack of a better word, what you're describing, which is doubt, where people see their faith not fully explaining or feeling sufficient in the moment where uh, something of great emotional significance is happening for them and for people they love.
0: So, So I guess my question is, so you get to that point in a political conversation where a person, you know, they tell you a story that's tender and it sort of contrasts with a political expression earlier in the conversation that wasn't so tender. And you sort of say, like, gosh, that these two things don't seem to necessarily fit into the same box. You know, are, are, are you trying, is your goal to say like, do you see the conflict there or what how do you turn the conversation at that point?
1: Well, first I just, I say, I, 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 I try to keep it to me, not advising them. So because well,
0: what I worry about is that it would seem like you were, you, you were like, gotcha.
1: Yeah, See? no, no. What I want to do is say, here. I heard you say this, and then I heard you say this, and I'm wondering, uh, it sounds like maybe you're conflicted. Do you? Do you feel like maybe you're conflicted? So right off, I just want to know, do they see these things as being in conflict? Because if they don't, uh, uh, I don't think I have more, mu- much more to do here.
0: But, right. If they go, nope, these things fit together for me. I got no problems.
1: But if they you, say, you're, you're right, I have conflicting feelings, then I can ask them, not tell them, I can ask them. You know, how do you want to resolve the conflict? How do you want to put these two things together? And what happens then is uh mostly my listening but but sometimes it's a back and forth. but the truth of it is, even though people's opinions uh, have been stated maybe with vehemence, people believe their real lived experience more than they believe their opinions. And so once they notice that their real lived experience actually is in conflict with their opinions, they are more likely to modify their opinions and not everybody does it. And not everybody does it simultaneously. Right? Right. It's not that they necessarily, uh, they they
0: don't or instant or instantaneously they don't do it right in that moment necessarily well,
1: they might or might not that's right so it it uh, and in fact all kinds of things can happen in that moment uh, but but once once we've gotten there uh what what I've discovered is uh some of the people and, and the funny thing is at the beginnings of the conversations, I honestly can't tell much of the time among conservative voters who is gonna be unmovable and who is gonna be movable. It, it really, uh, I, I, I can't, I, 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 and, and in politics at the moment, the way it's practiced, there's an enormous desire on the part of political consultants and political practitioners to triage. And uh, triage is almost the nicest word I can use. Uh, essentially, they throw away- to snap,
0: ju- to snap judge, to quickly judge who's gettable.
1: Oh, well, they judge before they interact with the people at all. So what they're really likely to do is on the basis of polling data- which are really terribly poor at predicting who might change their mind, uh, in my experience, right? Uh, they, on the basis of glorified polling data and some models and algorithms that they've developed that have gone, uh, that that are vastly over-inclusive and under-inclusive at identifying the population of persuadable people, uh, they never even contact the people who would be in the universe of people we might want to change. Instead, they go for some tiny, tiny, tiny subset of this that is almost arbitrarily selected. And uh, I guess what I've learned from deep canvassing is how often I'm surprised that, you know, uh, this... The guidance that I would be offered in terms of persuadability scores uh, or other targeting measures uh, it, it it's it's so unhelpful. I am better off talking to everybody <laughs> <laughs> and 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 maybe did some, you
0: did you yeah no, yeah, did you ever I don't know if you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book, blink, oh yeah. Okay, but he talks about used car dealers, and he says that you know people walk on the lot. Some guy walks on in a slick Armani suit, and they go, "Ooh, this is going to be great." And some guy walks on the lot wearing dirty overalls and a ripped T-shirt, and th- and they go, "Like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not even going to bother." And he's and he said that the great car salesman always know that you treat everybody equally not out of any sense of egalitarianism but because you flat out don't know who showed up on the lot today ready to buy a car you have no idea and 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 your triage your early triage stuff is the, the margin of error is so great that they are useful useless that 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 you are better off just going like you know what i have no idea who this person is until i start talking to them
1: well yeah and and and, and here's some of the reasons this is true, by the way, and maybe it's even more apparent in the example you're giving. Because you realize if the only data that you're paying attention to is the voter or the car buyer, you're missing at least half the data because it's really, can you connect with them? I am half the data, right? In other words, I'm not equal of any of
0: these conversations. No. Yeah. of any conversation you're in. Yeah,
1: right. I, in other words, am I going to persuade this voter has something to do with them, and something to do with me, and something to do with who we are together, and and uh, and so deciding that you're going to triage. When you've got this very oversimplified uh, view, this mechanistic view of the other person, and you're not even taking into account the possibilities that uh, a human being could bring to an interaction with that person, means that you're vastly uh, in danger, you're, you're really in danger of misjudging all the time, which is your point about the Malcolm Gladwell example.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, I'm a, a little voices ringing in my ear. It's just going like, don't, you know, that, that phrase in journalism, don't bury the lead in terms of the conversation, the parallel between this and the conversation. So many people have in their families about whether it's politics or especially religion, people, if given the opportunity, they tend to trust their lived experiences more than they trust their opinions. and. I am convinced that that is the key to having healthy, even if they're not ultimately winning conversations with people who think differently is to ground the conversation in lived experiences to tell stories and to elicit stories. Um, if only because that is the, if, if there's going to be any change of, of mind, it's, it's going to happen there when they, when people see some kind of a conflict between their lived experience and the thing that they're, they're telling you. But, but if you directly attack the logic of their argument, you are almost vanishingly small possibility of, of seeing any kind of real engagement or change.
1: Well, I've never seen it happen. <laughs> in other <laughs> words, and, and when I think about my own experience, right, in my own life, when have I changed my mind about something really important? It's not common, right? Right. Uh, but it's happened and <clears throat> and it's never happened because somebody gave me a good talking to and wagged their finger in my face
0: it it really uh and and, and for some pe- for some very logical people it does happen not with the wagging finger but sometimes people are overpowered by the force of argument but I would say it's a very small set of the population that are scientific thinking enough naturally to be swayed by evidence. Most of us are swayed by experience or by emotion. And so that's, that's where I think the deep canvassing thing connects with the, the cross-faith conversation thing because you have to move it from opinions and beliefs down to the level of experiences and feelings.
1: Yes. And I think the thing I would even add is even people where we might have the impression that a fact we've offered has landed in a powerful way. What really matters is not what has happened at this moment alone. We really care about changing people in a way that endures. And I, so what I've noticed, right, is that once an adult decides for themselves, uh, on the basis of their real lived experience, that they've that they're changing part or all of their mind about something, and once they revise their opinion to match their real lived experience, there's a much greater chance. That's going to last, and and that's what we need. Because if we had to go talk for fifteen or twenty minutes to every infrequent voter at every election, that might feel Sisyphean. But if we uh, have that conversation and we begin something where they're now much more likely to be voting. In every election, without our further intervening, right, uh, there's much more of a chance that we're, we're – we could move away from the very perilous point we are now.
0: Because yeah, very- that, alignment, that alignment is sort of self-reinforcing. Yeah. Once, once a person starts to see these connections and they start to vote out of – uh, 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 v- 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 or, or start to act in ways that are grounded in their own experience, and that, th- then their own experience reinforces like the, the 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 behavior that you're trying to get at.
1: Oh, exactly, and because uh, you know the very perilous point we're at now as a country is we have uh, the largest group of people who could be voting or not voting, and it's not because they're indifferent. It's not because they're apathetic. It's not because they're stupid. Uh, it, it's but it, it it there is nothing automatic about their engaging and voting without our intervening. And and but if we have uh, the biggest group of people in the country not participating, and the relatively uh, and the. So we've got a group of people who are participating that's almost equally divided. We tend to think, oh, the country is equally divided. The country's not equally divided into two parts. It, it, it's closer to being equally divided into three parts. It, 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 because we've really got a bunch of people who really agree with a more progressive, humane view but the biggest group of them are are not don't, participating. Don't
0: well, the, the, and you know what? I'm gonna. I, I'm, it's funny. I'm listening to my granddaughter downstairs, and I'm realizing that uh, my my time of freedom has ended, and my time of babysitting uh, is about to start again. Um, but but what I hear you saying to summarize, and, and actually not to summarize, but to 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 all, feel free. That's my, cool. My, okay, it's my conclusion. Yeah, Is there's 400, there's, there's roughly 400 days between now and the election and we could spend, if a person is saying, I don't know what, to, I know what to do on an election day, but I don't know in between now and then what to do. It seems to me the most direct application of what your experience and what you're telling me is partly like, yeah, when you talk to people, talk this way, but more importantly, I think that. There's this understanding that we all need to have that there's a tremendous number of people who are potential votes for a more loving America, who are not planning to vote. They are not naturally inclined to vote. They are not, it is not in their habit to vote. And that our job over the next 400 days is to really connect with those people and to try to help them to see some kind of a connection between voting and their lived experience of life in the world and in the universe and in America today. That there's a sense in which the, the, peop- the, the most important thing that we need to do is to turn out non-voters because if we turn out non-voters, love is going to do a lot better.
1: Yes, and the one thing I would just add is, and most of those non-voters, believe it or not, They are already registered to vote. So although it's good to talk to people who are not registered to vote, the amazing thing is that you you might not know who the infrequent voters are who are in your life or who are your neighbors or who are sitting next to you at church or who are sitting next to you at work, right? You you might need to begin simply by finding a kind, vulnerable way to check in with people about this.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that that's a great phrase to check in because there's this sense in which uh, I, I I don't I don't think to ask people I I I, I always ask young people Are you registered? But what do you think is the right check-in question? Did you vote in the last election? When was the last time you vote? What's a, what's a good check-in question?
1: Well, I, I think, they, first of all, there's no one magic question. Right. Because uh, people overreport whether they have voted. They know what the right answer is. <laughs> so if you ask, you know, did you vote in the last election? A lot of people might say yes when they didn't. I think a good check in question is you know, I know that not everybody votes every time. Uh, I was wondering, you know, when you think back, have you ever missed an election, do you think? Because that way they say, well, maybe I might have. Right, well, right. Anything other than absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> means, yes, they are an infrequent voter. And if you just decide to proceed then to explore that more with them. Yeah. It, but but don't dwell, if you dwell on it too much, it's going to feel like judgment. So you really just want to ask once. and And then if you think maybe you're talking to an infrequent voter, have the conversation. If you want though, you really could, especially if you were gonna go around your neighborhood, voter lists that are public records will tell you for each of your neighbors, have they ever missed an election? It's not that hard. Uh, and, And so you actually could even take, you could go down to the Board of Elections or go to the Secretary of State website But you have a variety of places you could look. And if you made a list of 20 people on your block who you know, you might discover, oh, 10 of them are infrequent voters. And then you might decide, oh, I'll I'll talk to one or two of them. Uh, Or in the normal course of things, when I do talk with them, maybe I won't ask them if they're infrequent voters. I'm just going to have this conversation.
0: Well, and of course, if you get to the vulnerability thing, um, the good news for many of us, including myself, is I can say, you know, I've missed a few elections. You know, like I, I can be vulnerable there and say, you know, I've been thinking, you know, have you ever missed an election? And they go like, yeah, maybe I have. I go, like, you know, I have too. And and yet I'm thinking right now that this election you know, it's it's pretty personal to me. Like, I really don't want to miss this one. And then I'm into a personal story about why this stuff matters to me right now. Um, and and so I I really do, I, for me, that's the practical thing is the, the notion. And I didn't know that you could find out who in your neighborhood had missed elections, who was registered but didn't vote. Um, but it seems to me that those are the people that uh, that we need to try to find ways to engage. And I'm just so grateful to you that you're, not, not not just that you're coming back to Ohio to do that stuff, but just that in general, I feel like you're spending a lot of time figuring out how do we engage people that need to be engaged in ways that are not only for love, but that are, they're not only loving in their ends, but they're also loving in their means. And, and that, you know, I think is so often we, we use non-loving methods because we say, well, you know, but the end justifies the means and what we want, what we have in mind is good. So we don't have to be nice to people along the way because our, our objective is nice. And I think it's really important that the way we pursue goodness be in itself good. And the way we pursue love be in itself loving. And I'm just so grateful, um, for the work you're doing in, in all this stuff. It means a lot to me.
1: Well, thanks Bart. It's really great talking with you about this and, uh, And, and it's really fascinating to me that the way you've discovered this has been in the context of your changing your mind about, about religion and God.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I had an experience once with a young person and I I remember we got this thing and, and I said to him, I said, so when you figure out that you're wrong about something, when you figure out that you're just dead wrong and you change your mind, how does that make you feel? and I thought he, he would say embarrassed or I thought he would say you know ashamed or something like that. He looked at me with bright eyes and he said it, it it's amazing it's amazing to change your mind and uh, and I've found that in my experience that there's something exhilarating and very humanizing about changing your mind it's it's a beautiful experience and and I think in some ways when you give that experience to somebody else, when you when you when you create an opportunity for them to change their mind, sometimes you might think like, ha, I defeated them. <laughs> and I think like in a, in, in a real argument, in, in, in a really good conversation or a really good argument, um, the loser is the winner. And the winner doesn't feel that way. Um, you know, that it's really about, creating a situation where people are allowed to change their mind and where they are in where they are affirmed for changing their mind. Cause if we're not changing our minds, we're not growing.
1: Right. Cause what you're really describing there, right. On the part of the person who's instigated the change is this enormous willingness not to take credit. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or maybe more accurately, uh, And they have an accurate humility about their limited role in the situation, (laughs) which, uh, that's, that's, uh, that really is, uh, we all know people who've given us a gift like that as we've grown up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, teachers, people, friends. Yeah. Who, who had a lot to do with our are coming into ourselves or figuring something out about themselves, but never said, Hey, you know, I was the one who, you know, I did that, you know, like, remember when I said that, um, who just stand back and go like, wow, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. Um, yeah, we have people like that. And I, I know you're a person like that in some of my young friends' lives and I'm grateful for it. And, I'm grateful for this conversation. Listen, when you come back to Chillicothe, when you're coming back to Southern Ohio, like seriously, like next 400 days, I, like I'm on your team. Like, yeah, I, I, I think I might be able to enlist some other people. So when you have a sense of what it is, of, of, of where you want to deploy some people around Cincinnati, you get, you get with me fast, okay? Gladly. All right, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Bart. Take care. All right, that was me and David. You know the drill. If you liked it, if you've got a question, if you've got some input, if you got anything for me, email me. Go to the website and post something on the Facebook group. Somehow communicate this. Go to Patreon, the Patreon page. Like somehow let us know what you're thinking, what you want, what's working for you, what's not, because increasingly this is becoming a show of the people who listen to it. Okay um there's probably some stuff i ought to be talking to you about but i'm babysitting in a few minutes my my daughter's gone back to work and we haven't figured out childcare because we got like issues where we're just really touchy because she's little and cute and we just want to be sure everything's fine so in the meantime marty and i are swapping off and doing a lot of babysitting and I'd like to tell you that it was a real hassle and that it's really uh, confusing my life and making things difficult, but it's not. It's just a delight. And when you meet my granddaughter, you know what? I'm not going to do it in a creepy way. I'm not going to become one of those grandfathers that's always doing it, posting pictures and telling you about cutesy stories. But I am going to post a little video of my granddaughter on the Patreon page because I, I just want you to know who I'm talking about, Maya Roosevelt Stowers. The light of not just my life, many lives right now. And you, you when you see her, you'll go like, yeah, she's cute. But and, and you go like, but what's the big deal? Probably. And, 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 and you see, that's the amazing thing about evolution and the amazing thing about our brains is that when the baby comes from our DNA and when it looks a little bit like us or somebody that we know and when we feel that connection, we instantaneously are more interested and we think she's cuter and more beautiful and more wonderful than anything else. And I know that there's probably a baby in each of your lives that you feel more strongly towards than you do towards my baby. And the truth is, is that I'm glad about that. I'm glad you love your people more than you love my people because it frees me up to love my people more and not feel guilty about it. I hope that as time goes on, each of us at some point in our lives has a person or two or three that we go, that's my person. That's the person on the planet that matters more to me than anyone else. And that we can draw some joy and some excitement about watching that person grow and develop because that is a huge part of the joy of being human. And that's what we're after here, right? That's what we're after. All right, I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life. You